All right, well, if you'd please turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be in the last two verses. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'll start from verse 14 and I'll read Paul's entire prayer here. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would give you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being firmly rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, I have the privilege of preaching on these closing verses of Ephesians 3, where Paul breaks out in a joyful doxology, praising God for his mighty power and glory. And that's all a doxology is, really, is an expression of praise to God. Up to this point in the letter, Paul has written one of the most magnificent treatises on the gospel, God's plan for salvation. In three short chapters, he's laid out this plan from eternity past to his present day. Chapter 1, God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's predestined us from the foundation of the world, from before the foundation of the world, to be his adopted children. We have redemption and the forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus on the cross. We were given the Holy Spirit as the guarantee that God will give us this inheritance in Christ. Chapter 1, we see all three persons of the Trinity working in perfect harmony and unity to save lost sinners, all to the praise of his glorious grace. That's just chapter 1, y'all. Chapter 2, Paul contrasts this incredible vision of God's mercy and love with our abject wickedness. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, enemies of God, the servants of Satan himself. But God was rich in mercy and loved us with a great love. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the sacrifice of Christ alone. Not only that, but we're saved for good works, in God's service, and as the church are being built into a holy sanctuary for God himself to dwell in. Chapter 3. God has extended his grace and mercy, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles as well. This mystery, hidden for the ages, has now been revealed to Paul from God and by Paul in the word to us. 
We Gentiles are fellow partakers of the promise of salvation in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And this was God's eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ our Lord. We who were far from God have been brought near. Paul has shown us the heart of God in all its beauty, tender mercy, and love, more so than tomes throughout the ages have been able to do. And now he ends this rich doctrinal section with one of the best prayers ever uttered. May we pray this prayer often for ourselves and for the church. He says, in light of this spiritual buffet that I've just laid out for you, I pray that you would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man. I pray that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith and that you'd be rooted and grounded in love, that you'd comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the power of God and that you would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. What a prayer. And at the end of this great prayer is one of the greatest doxologies. Paul's heart is caught up in love to the God who has done all these things, and he invites the reader to worship alongside him with these words. Beginning in verse 20. Now to him who is able. We could stop there and spend the rest of our time talking about the God who is able. The God who has all power in himself, who created all things for himself, The God of whom Paul says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There's nothing that limits God. Nothing that can hinder him. Even the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged this when he said, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can strike against his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is able to do whatever he wills to do. And whatever he has promised, we can be assured it will come to pass. Paul is praying to the God who is able. Able to do what? who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand. Listen to those words again. God is able to do far more. Well, we can all go home happy with that. Of course God can do far more, certainly far more than we can do. He's God. But Paul keeps going. Far more abundantly. At this point, it's just icing on the cake. Hasn't Paul already said in chapter 1 that God's power is surpassingly great? But he's still not done. Far more abundantly beyond. Far more abundantly beyond what? All that we ask or understand. In the context of Paul's prayer, he's saying, All these things that I've prayed for on your behalf, spiritual strength, a greater understanding of Christ's love, not only is God able to answer that prayer, but he's able to do even more than that, if you can even conceive of such a thing. More than you could possibly imagine. And all you have to do is look at history. 
to see that Paul's prayer for the Ephesians has been and is being answered, but far more abundantly beyond what even Paul could have imagined. God's answer to this prayer has extended far beyond the Ephesians, far beyond the ancient world even. All over the world, in the hearts of Christians without number, throughout the past 2,000 years, Paul's prayer is still being answered to this day, and it will be until Christ comes back. We're being built up in the Spirit. Christ is dwelling in our hearts through faith. Among the churches, there is a growing comprehension of the breadth and width and height and depth of God's power, and the love of Christ is being made known. If God only ever answered this one prayer, we'd be in pretty good shape as believers. Pause again and listen to what the inspired apostle is saying. The infinitely powerful God, limitless in ability, hindered by nothing and no one, listens to our prayers and he answers them. And not only does he answer them, But he does far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask for or even understand. He did so for the Apostle Paul and he does so for us. Consider what another Apostle, John, tells us in his first letter. And this is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Do you have that confidence before God? Do you pray expectantly, knowing that if you pray according to God's will, not only does he hear, but he answers. And he answers in the affirmative. And not only will he answer you, but he will go abundantly beyond what you could have thought to ask him in the first place. May we never be satisfied with small prayers. We don't have to look much further than the examples of saints throughout just Scripture to see that this truth is confirmed. Look at Abraham. God promised him that nations would come from him when the dude was a hundred years old. And Sarah was like a year younger. Well past childbearing age. And even though it's not recorded, surely they prayed in secret and trusted that God's will would be done. And sure enough, God gave them Isaac. And not just Isaac, but Jacob, who fathered the nation of Israel, from whom came the Messiah. God did far more abundantly beyond anything that Abraham could have imagined. What about King David? In the midst of Israel's turmoil and longing for a king, surely pious David prayed that God would provide for them. Then God made him a lowly shepherd boy, the king of his chosen nation on earth. I bet he didn't see that one coming. Or Solomon. He asked for wisdom. Not only did God give him wisdom, but riches beyond anything we could imagine as well. Eat your heart out, Elon Musk. What about the righteous Israelites in the exile who prayed and longed for deliverance from their enemies, for the Messiah to come, Imagine their shock had they lived to see the lowly carpenter from Nazareth who died on a Roman cross. And yet from that death came the forgiveness of sins, justification before God, 
not just for the Jews, but for all who would believe in Jesus Christ, far more abundantly beyond what any of them could have imagined. What about you? What's your experience? It's true of many Christians that we can tend to have less of an emphasis on our experiences, more on the objective, which is good and true. But here we can look at our experiences and we can see where God has been faithful in answering prayer. What about you? I'm confident that any one of you can look back over the course of your lives and see where God has done far more than we could imagine and certainly more than we deserve. There's an old adage that says, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Not so of God. God has no need to be selfish. He has no need to abuse his power. First of all, he's good, but he already has all the glory. But even so, even though he has this limitless power, he sends it forth for the benefit of the saints. Continuing on in verse 20, we read, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand, according to the power that works within us. So we see Paul's praise continues as he extols the mighty power of God that not only works to answer our prayers, but that works within us as well. God has made us the subjects of his power. This isn't to say, of course, that we possess the power of God, that it's somehow at our beck and call, but we have the power of God working in us and for us. God is able to answer our prayers beyond what we ask or understand according to the very same power that works in us for salvation. This is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. By this power, sinners are raised from spiritual death and given new life. It's the same power that the Holy Spirit works in us to make us holy unto the Lord. Again, just contemplate this with me. The glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, uses infinite power to work in your hearts and mine. What an incredible truth. That alone reveals God's character as a God full of love and grace. As unlike us as he is, yet he stoops low to work in our hearts, sinful though they may be. That's the essence of the gospel. God has taken our hearts of stone and made them hearts of flesh. If you have turned from your sins and had faith in Jesus Christ, this is true of you. No wonder Paul is worshiping. This is good news. The God revealed in Scripture is a far cry from the God of deism, which only creates but doesn't interact with creation, has no cares for what he's made. No, that God is far too transcendent for the likes of us. But we can imagine God to be like that, can't we, sometimes? We so emphasize God's transcendent glory, as well we should, that we can forget that he is also near to us. May we never think in our hearts that God is too busy for us. We're his adopted children. He delights in us. It's his power that works in us. That wouldn't be the case if God didn't care. And may we also avoid the error of legalism. 
We should take Paul's command in Philippians chapter 2 seriously, where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yes and amen. The Christian life isn't a lazy one. It's one of striving. Striving after righteousness, holiness, the pursuit of Christ. We're to guard our hearts. We're to battle sin. We're to be diligent in prayer and the study of the word, to put off the old man and put on the new. Yes, these things are true. The danger comes when we stop there and don't keep reading. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the power that works within us, that Paul is praising God for. We don't strive on our own strength. It's all of grace. God's internal working in our hearts produces external fruits in our lives. God is the one who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's a wonderful story of a father-son duo who ran 32 Boston marathons together. And I did the math. That's 838.4 miles. I don't think I've even run that many miles in my entire life. But in each one, the son didn't run. He couldn't. He was a quadriplegic, and he had cerebral palsy. So his father would push him in a wheelchair. 32 Boston marathons, pushing his son in a wheelchair. That's a beautiful picture of how the father cares for us, his children. In our own strength, we are unable to run the race but we rely on the grace and power of God, our Father. That's been Paul's point throughout Ephesians so far. God has elected. God has adopted. It's God's grace, God's authority, God's administration, God's riches. Over and over again, the message has been clear. It's all of God. Praise God that it's not of me. And this is a wonderful setup for chapters 4 to 6 as well because there Paul is going to start applying the theological principles that he laid out in chapters 1 to 3. And without relying on the power of God working in our hearts, those applications are impossible. But to ground us once again in our passage in Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, this is a doxology. Paul is praising God because his power is at work in us. And if you have believed In the Son of God, this power is at work in you. And so listen to these next words from Paul and let your hearts join his in worship. Verse 21. To him be the glory. To God be the glory. In the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul ends his doxology with these sublime words of praise to the God who is able, the God who is powerful, the God who has done great things. As the old hymn says that we just sang, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. And this has always been Paul's MO. It was said of John Bunyan that if you pricked him anywhere, he would bleed Bible. If you pricked the Apostle Paul, he would bleed the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who he was to the core. It consumed every part of him. Can you say the same for yourself? Do you have a desire to see the glory of God spread abroad in your heart, in your family, in the church, the nation, the world? That was Paul's hope and prayer. 
To him be the glory, Paul says, in the church and in Jesus Christ. This is the only instance where Paul refers both to the church and to Jesus in a doxology. Remarkably, he seems to be saying that the glory of God somehow resides in the church. How can that be? In the Old Testament, the glory of God was in the temple or the tabernacle, marked by the fiery cloud by night and the pillar of smoke by day. That glory sat on the Ark of the Covenant, flanked by the golden cherubim. It'd be pretty cool if we could have flaming pillars above our heads, but it just doesn't work like that, unfortunately. It was unapproachable, this glory, by anyone except the high priest, once a year. And that was the point. Separation. The sins of the people were too great for anyone to approach God, otherwise he would have broken out against them. And he did a couple of times. Without proper sacrifice, the glory of God would depart. And that's exactly what ended up happening. But listen to these words from Paul in Ephesians 2, one chapter earlier, where he says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. That's language used to describe the temple, holy sanctuary. He goes on, In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Do you hear what Paul is saying here? The glory of God resides in the church because the church is God's new dwelling place. He no longer dwells in a a building made with hands, but in the hearts of the people he's chosen to save. Just as the blood of goats purified the temple, The blood of Christ has purified our hearts to be God's new temple. That's why he prays that God would be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. They're inseparable. The church is Christ's body. He's the head. The only way that God's glory could dwell in our hearts in the first place is through the blood of Christ. The sacrifice that makes us right with God has allowed him to dwell with us in closest possible relationship, this side of glory. Let that be a comfort to you this evening. God dwells with you, and he's there to stay. And finally, Paul's hope and prayer is that God will be glorified to all generations forever and ever. Those phrases, to all generations and forever and ever, encompass time and eternity. From here until as far forward as you can go without any reference point for stopping. By the power of God, the church has endured and will endure into eternity, where it will dwell with God forever. And whether on heaven or on earth, sorry, excuse me, whether on earth or in heaven, the church will be praising God. These final verses of chapter 3 don't just contain rich doctrinal considerations, but also practical application. The foremost of which is that our utmost concern must be the glory of God. It should consume us like it consumed the Apostle Paul. After all, he's delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. Should we not want to bring that to the world? Like ambassadors to a foreign nation, our mission is to spread the glory of the Lord. 
whether it be in conversation, in family matters, in the workplace, in every thought, word, and deed, we must be committed to mirroring God's goodness to everyone. It's an unfortunate reality that in every age, the church has had its failures when it comes to the glory of God and mirroring that to a lost world. There's a danger in being too overzealous to the point of extremism and not being zealous enough to the point of liberalism. And I think we're seeing both problems in the U.S. On the one hand, the glory of God has been left by the wayside for the, for the sake of sexual freedom. Personal choice, the glory, not of God, but the human creature. And on the other hand, people seem to think that the glory of God lies in political victory, institutional control, being on the winning side. May these things never be said of us here at Lakewood Bible Chapel. May we never blaspheme God by reducing his glory to our own achievements or sinful self-actualization. Let us be committed to glorifying God for his mighty power, to showing the world that the real victory is the victory over sin and death accomplished by Christ on the cross, to praising the God who answers prayer beyond what we could imagine. May we be a joyful people because of the power that's working in our hearts to conform us to Christ's image. May we be active for the glory of God and proclaiming the gospel to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors. As a church, may we be committed to the preaching of God's word above programs and gimmicks to be grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which alone has the power to save. As Paul will say in chapter 4, verse 1, let us walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called to be obedient to his commands to love God and neighbor. That's how we glorify God. Do you believe that this evening? Are you committed to that? And the final word in chapter 3, which will close out this beautiful section, is amen. It's a fitting end to chapter 3. It's also a fitting end to the whole first half of Ephesians because it means Let it be so. And as we close out this section of Ephesians, may we match the apostles' affirmation and pray that the Lord would confirm these things, would make these things so in our own hearts. Let's pray. Father, in this short amount of time that we've been going through this short letter of your inspired apostle, we've seen so much of your glory, so much of your goodness and love and beauty, compassion towards sinners. And Lord, these last two verses of Ephesians 3, there's just so much there, so much of of your glory. You answer our prayers. The fact that you even hear our prayers is wonderful beyond understanding because you're so unlike us. We are so sinful. And yet you hear us, you answer us, you forgive our sins through the sacrifice of Christ. And so, Lord, as we, as we close out and as we look forward to the next half of Ephesians, may we be encouraged by the gospel and may that be the fuel which drives us to live lives pleasing to you. 
For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.